Chapter Nineteen, Part One of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Next to Oppenheimer and Morrell, who rotted with me through the years of darkness, I was considered the most dangerous prisoner in San Quentin. On the other hand, I was considered the toughest, tougher even than Oppenheimer and Morrell. Of course, by toughness I mean enduringness. Terrible as were the attempts to break them in body and in spirit, more terrible were the attempts to break me. And I endured. Dynamite, or curtains, had been Warden Atherton's ultimatum. And in the end, it was neither. I could not produce the dynamite, and Warden Atherton could not induce the curtains. It was not because my body was enduring, but because my spirit was enduring and it was because, in earlier existences, my spirit had been wrought to steel hardness by steel-hard experiences. There was one experience that for long was a sort of nightmare to me. It had neither beginning nor end. Always I found myself on a rocky, surge-battered islet, so low that in storms the salt spray swept over its highest point. It rained much. I lived in a lair and suffered greatly for I was without fire and lived on uncooked meat. Always I suffered. It was the middle of some experience to which I could get no clue. And since, when I went into the little death, I had no power of directing my journeys, I often found myself reliving this particularly detestable experience. My only happy moments were when the sun shone, at which times I basked on the rocks and thawed out the almost perpetual chill I suffered. My one diversion was an oar and a jackknife. Upon this oar I spent much time, carving minute letters and cutting a notch for each week that passed. There were many notches. I sharpened the knife on a flat piece of rock, and no barber was ever more careful of his favorite razor than was I of that knife. Nor did ever a miser prize his treasure as did I prize the knife. It was as precious to me, it was as precious as my life. In truth, it was my life. By many repetitions I managed to bring back out of the jacket the legend that was carved on the oar. At first I could bring but little. Later it grew easier, a matter of piecing portions together. And at last I had the thing complete. Here it is. This is to acquaint the person into whose hands this oar may fall, that Daniel Foss, a native of Elkton in Maryland, one of the United States of America, and who sailed from the port of Philadelphia in 1809 on board the brig Negotiator, bound to the Friendly Islands, was cast upon this desolate island the February following, where he erected a hut and lived a number of years, subsisting on seals. He being the last who survived of the crew of said brig, which ran foul of an island of ice and foundered on the 25th November, 1809. There it was, quite clear. By this means I learned a lot about myself. One vexed point, however, I never did succeed in clearing up. Was this island situated in the far South Pacific or the far South Atlantic? I did not know enough of sailing ship tracks to be certain whether the brig negotiator would sail for the friendly islands via Cape Horn or via the Cape of Good Hope. To confess my own ignorance, not until after I was transferred to Folsom did I learn in which ocean were the friendly islands. The Japanese murderer, whom I have mentioned before, had been a sailmaker on board the Arthur Sewall ships, 
and he told me that the probable sailing course would be by way of the Cape of Good Hope. If this were so, then the dates of sailing from Philadelphia and of being wrecked would easily determine which ocean. Unfortunately, the sailing date is merely 1809. The wreck might as likely have occurred in one ocean as the other. Only once did I, in my trances, get a hint of the period preceding the time spent on the island. This begins at the moment of the brig's collision with the iceberg, and I shall narrate it, if for no other reason, at least to give an account of my curiously cool and deliberate conduct. This conduct at this time, as you shall see, was what enabled me in the end to survive alone of all the ship's company. I was awakened, in my bunk in the forecastle, by a terrific crash. In fact, as was true of the other six sleeping men of the watch below, awaking and leaping from bunk to floor were simultaneous. We knew what had happened. The others waited for nothing, rushing only partly clad upon deck. But I knew what to expect, and I did wait. I knew that if we escaped at all, it would be by the longboat. No man could swim in so freezing a sea. And no man, thinly clad, could live long in the open boat. Also, I knew just about how long it would take to launch the boat. So by the light of the wildly swinging slush lamp, to the tumult on deck, and to cries of, She's sinking! I proceeded to ransack my sea-chest for suitable garments. Also, since they would never use them again, I ransacked the sea-chests of my shipmates. Working quickly but collectedly, I took nothing but the warmest and stoutest of clothes. I put on the four best woolen shirts the forecastle boasted, three pairs of pants, and three pairs of thick woolen socks. So large were my feet thus encased that I could not put on my own good boots. Instead, I thrust on Nicholas Wilton's new boots, which were larger and even stouter than mine. Also I put on Jeremy Naylor's pea-jacket over my own, and outside of both put on Seth Richard's thick canvas coat, which I remembered he had fresh oiled only a short while previous. Two pairs of heavy mittens, John Roberts' muffler, which his mother had knitted for him, and Joseph Dawes' beaver cap atop my own, both bearing ear and neck flaps, completed my outfitting. The shouts that the brig was sinking redoubled, but I took a minute longer to fill my pockets with all the plug tobacco I could lay my hands on. Then I climbed out on deck, and not a moment too soon. The moon, bursting through a crack of cloud, showed a bleak and savage picture. Everywhere was wrecked gear, and everywhere was ice. The ships, ropes, and spars of the main mast, which was still standing, were fringed with icicles, and there came over me a feeling almost of relief in that never again should I have to pull and haul on the stiff tackles and hammer ice so that the frozen ropes could run through the frozen shivs. The wind, blowing half a gale, cut with the sharpness that is a sign of the proximity of icebergs, and the big seas were bitter cold to look upon in the moonlight. The longboat was lowering away to starboard, and I saw men, struggling on the ice-sheeted deck with barrels of provisions, abandon the food in their haste to get away. In vain, Captain Nicole strove with them. A sea, breaching across from windward, settled the matter and sent them, leaping over the rail in heaps. I gained the captain's shoulder, and, holding on to him, I shouted in his ear that if he would board the boat and prevent the men from casting off, I would attend to the provisioning. Little time was given me, however. Scarcely had I managed, helped by the second mate, Aaron Northrup, 
to lower away half a dozen barrels and kegs, when all cried from the boat that they were casting off. Good reason they had. Down upon us from windward was drifting a towering ice mountain, while to leeward, close aboard, was another ice mountain upon which we were driving. Quicker in his leap was Aaron Northrup. I delayed a moment, even as the boat was shoving away, in order to select a spot amidships where the men were thickest, so that their bodies might break my fall. I was not minded to embark with a broken member on so hazardous a voyage in the longboat. That the men might have room at the oars, I worked my way quickly aft into the stern sheets. Certainly I had other and sufficient reasons. It would be more comfortable in the stern sheets than in the narrow bow, and further, it would be well to be near the afterguard in whatever troubles that were sure to arise under such circumstances in the days to come. In the stern sheets were the mate, Walter Drake, the surgeon, Arnold Bentharn, Aaron Northrup, and Captain Nicole, who was steering. The surgeon was bending over Northrup, who lay in the bottom groaning. Not so fortunate had he been in his ill-considered leap, for he had broken his right leg at the hip joint. There was little time for him then, however, for we were laboring in a heavy sea directly between the two ice islands that were rushing together. Nicholas Wilton, at the stroke oar, was cramped for room, so I better stowed the barrels, and kneeling and facing him, was able to add my weight to the oar. Forward I could see John Roberts straining at the bow oar. Pulling on his shoulders from behind, Arthur Haskins and the boy, Benny Hardwater, added their weight to his. In fact, so eager were all hands to help that more than one was thus in the way and cluttered the movements of the rowers. It was close work, but we went clear by a matter of a hundred yards, so that I was able to turn my head and see the untimely end of the negotiator. She was caught squarely in the pinch, and she was squeezed between the ice as a sugar plum might be squeezed between thumb and forefinger of a boy. In the shouting of the wind and the roar of the water we heard nothing, although the crack of the brig's stout ribs and deck-beams must have been enough to awaken a hamlet on a peaceful night. Silently, easily, the brig's sides squeezed together, the deck bulged up, and the crushed remnant dropped down and was gone, while where she had been was occupied by the grinding conflict of the ice islands. I felt regret at the destruction of this haven against the elements, but at the same time was well pleased at thought of my snugness inside my four shirts and three coats. Yet it proved a bitter night, even for me. I was the warmest clad in the boat. What the others must have suffered I did not care to dwell upon over much. For fear that we might meet up with more ice in the darkness, we bailed and held the boat bow on to the seas. And continually, now with one mitten, now with the other, I rubbed my nose that it might not freeze. Also, with memories lively in me of the home circle in Elkton, I prayed to God. In the morning we took stock. To commence with, all but two or three had suffered frostbite. Aaron Northrup, unable to move because of his broken hip, was very bad. It was the surgeon's opinion that both of Northrup's feet were hopelessly frozen. The longboat was deep and heavy in the water, for it was burdened by the entire ship's company of twenty-one. Two of these were boys. Benny Hardwater was a bare thirteen, and Lish Dickery, whose family was near neighbor to mine in Elkton, was just turned sixteen. Our provisions consisted of three hundred weight of beef and two hundred weight of pork. 
The half-dozen loaves of brine-pulped bread which the cook had brought did not count. Then there were three small barrels of water and one small keg of beer. Captain Nicole frankly admitted that in this uncharted ocean he had no knowledge of any near land. The one thing to do was to run for more clement climate, which we accordingly did, setting our small sail and steering quartering before the fresh wind to the northeast. The food problem was simple arithmetic. We did not count Aaron Northrup, for we knew he would soon be gone. At a pound per day, our five hundred pounds would last us twenty-five days. At half a pound, it would last fifty. So half a pound had it. I divided and issued the meat under the captain's eyes, and managed it fairly enough, God knows, although some of the men grumbled from the first. Also, from time to time, I made fair provision among the men of the plug tobacco I had stowed in my many pockets, a thing which I could not but regret, especially when I knew it was being wasted on this man and that, who I was certain could not live a day more, or at best two days or three for we began to die soon in the open boat. Not to starvation, but to the killing cold and exposure were those earlier deaths due. It was a matter of the survival of the toughest and the luckiest. I was tough by constitution, and lucky inasmuch as I was warmly clad and had not broken my leg like Aaron Northrup. Even so, so strong was he, that despite being the first to be severely frozen, he was days in passing. Vance Hathaway was the first. We found him in the gray of dawn, crouched double in the bow, and frozen stiff. The boy, Lish Dickery, was the second to go. The other boy, Benny Hardwater, lasted ten or a dozen days. So bitter was it in the boat that our water and beer froze solid, and it was a difficult task justly to apportion the pieces I broke off with Northrop's clasp knife. These pieces we put in our mouths and sucked till they melted. Also, on occasion of snow squalls, we had all the snow we desired, all of which was not good for us, causing a fever of inflammation to attack our mouths so that the membranes were continually dry and burning, and there was no allying a thirst so generated. To suck more ice or snow was merely to aggravate the inflammation. More than anything else, I think it was this that caused the death of Lish Dickery. He was out of his head and raving for twenty-four hours before he died. He died babbling for water, and yet he did not die for need of water. I resisted as much as possible the temptation to suck ice, contenting myself with a shred of tobacco in my cheek, and made out with fair comfort. We stripped all clothing from our dead. Stark they came into the world, and stark they passed out over the side of the longboat and down into the dark freezing ocean. Lots were cast for the clothes. This was by Captain Nicole's command, in order to prevent quarreling. It was no time for the follies of sentiment. There was not one of us who did not know secret satisfaction at the occurrence of each death. Luckiest of all was Israel Stickney in casting lots, so that in the end, when he passed, he was a veritable treasure-trove of clothing. It gave a new lease of life to the survivors. We continued to run to the northeast before the fresh westerlies, but our quest for warmer weather seemed vain. Ever the spray froze in the bottom of the boat, and I still chipped beer and drinking water with Northrop's knife. My own knife I reserved. It was of good steel, 
with a keen edge and stoutly fashioned, and I did not care to peril it in such manner. By the time half our company was overboard, the boat had a reasonably high freeboard, and was less ticklish to handle in the gusts. Likewise, there was more room for a man to stretch out comfortably. A source of continual grumbling was the food. The captain, the mate, the surgeon, and myself, talking it over, resolved not to increase the daily whack of half a pound of meat. The six sailors, for whom Tobias Snow made himself spokesman, contended that the death of half of us was equivalent to a doubling of our provisioning, and that therefore the ration should be increased to a pound. In reply, we of the afterguard pointed out that it was our chance for life that was doubled, did we but bear with the half-pound ration. It is true that eight ounces of salt meat did not go far in enabling us to live and to resist the severe cold. We were quite weak, and because of our weakness we frosted easily. Noses and cheeks were all black with frostbite. It was impossible to be warm, although we now had double the garments we had started with. Five weeks after the loss of the negotiator, the trouble over the food came to a head. I was asleep at the time. It was night, when Captain Nicole caught Judge Hetchkins stealing from the pork barrel. That he was abetted by the other five men was proved by their actions. Immediately Judge Hetchkins was discovered, the whole six threw themselves upon us with their knives. It was close, sharp work in the dim light of the stars, and it was a mercy the boat was not overturned. I had reason to be thankful for my many shirts and coats which served me as an armor. The knife thrust scarcely more than drew blood through the so great thickness of cloth, although I was scratched to bleeding in a round dozen of places. The others were similarly protected, and the fight would have ended in no more than a mauling all around, had not the mate, Walter Dakin, a very powerful man, hit upon the idea of ending the matter by tossing the mutineers overboard. This was joined in by Captain Nicole, the surgeon, and myself, and in a trice five of the six were in the water and clinging to the gunwale. Captain Nicole and the surgeon were busy amidships with the sixth, Jeremy Naylor, and were in the act of throwing him overboard, while the mate was occupied with wrapping fingers along the gunwale with a boat stretcher. For the moment I had nothing to do, and so was able to observe the tragic end of the mate. As he lifted the stretcher to wrap Seth Richard's fingers, the latter, sinking down low in the water, and then jerking himself up by both hands, sprang half into the boat, locked his arms around the mate, and falling backward and outboard, dragged the mate with him. Doubtlessly he never relaxed his grip, and both drowned together. Thus, left alive of the entire ship's company, were three of us, Captain Nicole, Arnold Bentharn, the surgeon, and myself. Seven had gone in the twinkling of an eye, consequent on Judd Hetchkins's attempt to steal provisions. And to me it seemed a pity that so much good warm clothing had been wasted there in the sea. There was not one of us who could have managed gratefully with more. Captain Nicole and the surgeon were good men and honest. Often enough, when two of us slept, the one awake and steering could have stolen from the meat. But this never happened. We trusted one another fully and we would have died rather than betray that trust. We continued to content ourselves with half a pound of meat each per day, and we took advantage of every favoring breeze to work to the northern. Not until January 14th, seven weeks since the wreck, did we come up with a warmer latitude. Even then it was not really warm, 
it was merely not so bitterly cold. Here the fresh westerlies forsook us, and we bobbed and blobbed about in dull drummy weather for many days. Mostly it was calm, or like contrary winds, though sometimes a burst of breeze, as like as not from dead ahead, would last for a few hours. In our weakened condition, with so large a boat, it was out of the question to row. We could merely hoard our food and wait for God to show a more kindly face. The three of us were very faithful Christians, and we made a practice of prayer each day before the apportionment of food. Yes, and each of us prayed privately, often and long. By the end of January our food was near its end. The pork was entirely gone, and we used the barrel for catching and storing rainwater. Not many pounds of beef remained, and in all the nine weeks in the open boat we had raised no sail and glimpsed no land. Captain Nicole frankly admitted that after sixty-three days of dead reckoning he did not know where we were. The twentieth of February saw the last morsel of food eaten. I prefer to skip the details of much that happened in the next eight days. I shall touch only on the incidents that served to show what manner of men were my companions. We had starved so long we had no reserves of strength on which to draw when the food utterly ceased, and we grew weaker with great rapidity. On February 24th we calmly talked the situation over. We were three stout-spirited men, full of life and toughness, and we did not want to die. No one of us would volunteer to sacrifice himself for the other two. But we agreed on three things. We must have food, we must decide the matter by casting lots, and we would cast the lots next morning if there were no wind. Next morning there was wind, not much of it, but fair, so that we were able to log a sluggish two knots on our northerly course. The mornings of the twenty-sixth and twenty-seventh found us with a similar breeze. We were fearfully weak, but we abided by our decision and continued to sail. But with the morning of the twenty-eighth we knew the time was come. The longboat rolled drearily on an empty, windless sea, and the stagnant, overcast sky gave no promise of any breeze. I cut three pieces of cloth, all of a size, from my jacket. In the ravel of one of these pieces was a bit of brown thread. Whoever drew this lost. I then put the three lots into my hat, covering it with Captain Nicole's hat. All was ready, but we delayed for a time while each prayed silently and long, for we knew that we were leaving the decision to God. I was not unaware of my own honesty and worth, but I was equally aware of the honesty and worth of my companions, so that it perplexed me how God could decide so fine-balanced and delicate a matter. The captain, as was his right and due, drew first. After his hand was in the hat, he delayed for some time with closed eyes, his lips moving a last prayer, and he drew a blank. This was right, a true decision I could not but admit to myself, for Captain Nicole's life was largely known to me, and I knew him to be honest, upright, and God-fearing. Remained the surgeon and me. It was one or the other, and according to ship's rating, it was his due to draw next. Again we prayed. As I prayed I strove to quest back in my life and cast a hurried tally-sheet of my own worth and unworth. I held the hat on my knees with Captain Nicole's hat over it. The surgeon thrust in his hand and fumbled about for some time, while I wondered whether the feel of that one brown thread could be detected from the rest of the ravel. 
At last he withdrew his hand. The brown thread was in his piece of cloth. I was instantly very humble and very grateful for God's blessing thus extended to me, and I resolved to keep more faithfully than ever all of his commandments. The next moment I could not help but feel that the surgeon and the captain were pledged to each other by closer ties of position and intercourse than with me, and that they were in a measure disappointed with the outcome. And close with that thought ran the conviction that they were such true men that the outcome would not interfere with the plan arranged. I was right. The surgeon bared arm and knife and prepared to open a great vein. First, however, he spoke a few words. I am a native of Norfolk in the Virginias, he said, where I expect I have now a wife and three children living. The only favor that I have to request of you is, that should it please God to deliver either of you from your perilous situation, and should you be so fortunate as to reach once more your native country, that you would acquaint my unfortunate family with my wretched fate. Next he requested courteously of us a few minutes in which to arrange his affairs with God. Neither Captain Nicole nor I could utter a word, but with streaming eyes we nodded our consent. Without doubt Arnold Bentham was the best collected of the three of us. My own anguish was prodigious, and I am confident that Captain Nicole suffered equally. But what was one to do? The thing was fair and proper, and had been decided by God. But when Arnold Bentham had completed his last arrangements and made ready to do the act, I could contain myself no longer, and cried out, Wait! We who have endured so much surely can endure a little more. It is now mid-morning. Let us wait until twilight. Then, if no event has appeared to change our dreadful destiny, do you, Arnold Bentham, do as we have agreed. He looked to Captain Nicole for confirmation of my suggestion, and Captain Nicole could only nod. He could utter no word, but in his moist and frosty blue eyes was a wealth of acknowledgment I could not misread. I did not, I could not, deem it a crime, having so determined by fair drawing of lots that Captain Nicole and myself should profit by the death of Arnold Bentham. I could not believe that the love of life that actuated us had been implanted in our breasts by aught other than God. It was God's will and we, his poor creatures, could only obey and fulfill his will. And yet God was kind. In his all-kindness he saved us from so terrible, though so righteous, an act. Scarce had quarter of an hour passed, when a fan of air from the west, with a hint of frost and damp in it, crisped on our cheeks. In another five minutes we had steerage from the filled sail, and Arnold Bentham was at the steering sweep. Save what little strength you have, he had said. Let me consume the little strength left in me in order that it may increase your chance to survive. And so he steered to a freshening breeze, while Captain Nicole and I lay sprawled in the boat's bottom, and in our weakness dreamed dreams and glimpsed visions of the dear things of life far across the world from us. It was an ever-freshening breeze of wind that soon began to puff and gust. The cloud stuff flying across the sky foretold us of a gale. By midday Arnold Bentham fainted at the steering, and ere the boat could broach in the tidy sea already running, Captain Nicole and I were at the steering sweep, with all the four of our weak hands upon it. We came to an agreement, and, just as Captain Nicole had drawn the first lot by virtue of his office, so now he took the first spell at steering. Thereafter the three of us spelled one another every fifteen minutes. We were very weak, and we could not spell longer at a time. 
By mid-afternoon a dangerous sea was running. We should have rounded the boat, too, had our situation not been so desperate, and let her drift bow on to a sea-anchor extemporized of our mast and sail. Had we broached in those great overtopping seas, the boat would have been rolled over and over. Time and again that afternoon, Arnold Bentham, for our sakes, begged that we come to a sea-anchor. He knew that we continued to run only in the hope that the decree of the lots might not have to be carried out. He was a noble man. So was Captain Nicole Noble, whose frosty eyes had wizened to points of steel. And in such noble company, how could I be less noble? I thank God repeatedly, through the long afternoon of peril, for the privilege of having known two such men. God and the right dwelt in them, and no matter what my poor fate might be, I could but feel well recompensed by such companionship. Like them I did not want to die, yet was unafraid to die. The quick, early doubt I had had of these two men was long since dissipated. Hard the school and hard the men, but they were noble men, God's own men. I saw it first. Arnold Betham, his own death accepted, and Captain Nicole, well-nigh accepting death, lay rolling like loose-bodied, deep men in the boat's bottom, and I was steering when I saw it. The boat, foaming and surging with the swiftness of wind in its sail, was uplifted on a crest, when, close before me, I saw the sea-battered islet of rock. It was not half a mile off. I cried out, so that the other two, kneeling and reeling and clutching for support, were peering and staring at what I saw. "'Straight for it, Daniel,' Captain Nicole mumbled command. "'There may be a cove. There may be a cove. It is our only chance.' Once again he spoke, when we were atop that dreadful lee shore with no cove existent. "'Straight for it, Daniel.' If we go clear, we are too weak ever to win back against sea and wind. He was right. I obeyed. He drew his watch and looked, and I asked the time. It was five o'clock. He stretched out his hand to Arnold Betham, who met and shook it weakly, and both gazed at me, in their eyes extending the same handclasp. It was farewell, I knew. For what chance had creatures so feeble as we to win alive over those surf-battered rocks to the higher rocks beyond? End of chapter 19, part 1